Good evening, Metsville, and some Mets fans everywhere. My name is Michael Cohen, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. Do some research and find out where I do my stuff. I welcome you to a Metsian podcast, a trade, line de- a trade deadline special this evening. Uh, we will be without our resident converted Mets fan this evening, Sam Maxwell. Uh, however, I do have my other partner at the ready. Let's bring him in, hailing from Connecticut and all packed up for a weekend road trip, Rich Sparago. Hello, my friend. Good evening, Mike. Uh, thank you for the nice introduction. Looking forward to uh, Pittsburgh. I should say, this is one of those things that you plan in March. You know, you see when they're playing the Pirates out in Pittsburgh, oh, let's go. And then in June, when the team is tanking, it's like, ugh, we're going to Pittsburgh. And now it's like, yeah, let's go to Pittsburgh. So it's amazing how the baseball season can do that roller coaster of emotions to you, right? Well, you're going to be catching the surging Mets against the Pirates. Pittsburgh is a great baseball town. We were just talking about it before the show. Uh, a lot of landmarks, a lot of signs, a lot of history there. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, go catch Forbes Field. Uh, our, this evening's featured guest makes his uh, long-awaited return, too long, if I may. Uh, he hosts the Passive Ball Show, and he's a sports historian, someone I call a friend, John Pielli. Welcome. Hey, uh really great being on with you guys. Now, it's, uh, you know, it's like, you, like you said, it's been a while. I certainly look forward to talking to some Mets, and obviously at a good time when things, you know, seem to be going as well as they have all season. Well, why don't you take a couple of seconds here and uh, give us the shameless plugs, as we like to say here. Tell us what you're doing and where you're doing it. All right. I, I appreciate it. I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, I mean, I've been doing the past fall show since 2011. Uh, it actually started with, with kind of a lot more emphasis on talking Mets baseball. But, you know, as, uh, you know, with my, my research and my experience as a sports historian, I, I, I've gone more to cover national sports and sports history, uh, focused mostly on baseball, but over the last series of years had almost 500 guests in the world of sports, mostly uh, athletes, players, um, people associated with the game. And, you know, it's an interactive show, and a lot of people have been part of it. I obviously thank everybody that is, that is tuned into it. Um, if you haven't or want to learn a little more about it, you can follow the Passball Show on iTunes, Google Play, um, also on YouTube, and you can follow me on Twitter, John underscore Pielli. Uh, thanks again, guys, for having me on. Oh, the pleasure is all ours, by all means. And uh, let's start talking Mets baseball. Uh, let's recap Marcus Stroman. I do believe we touched upon him last podcast, but uh, with the trade deadline having come and gone, he was one of our acquisitions. So, John, how, in and of itself, how do you feel about the Marcus Stroman acquisition? I, I think it was a good move for the Mets. And I know a lot of emphasis is put on what did you give up to get him. And, listen, there's not, I got nothing bad to say about Anthony Kay or Simeon Woods Richardson, you know, two very good young arms, and I do think they're going to be major leaguers. But in order to make a deal, you got to give up something to get something. But I think the Mets put themselves in a position with Stroman that he will give them protection within their rotation if Zach Wheeler leaves as a free agent or if the Mets want to revisit the possibility of trading Noah Syndergaard. I think it will allow them to have some depth. You know, Stroman over the last series of years has had some ups and downs, but is, you know, coming off of an all-star season. And he's certainly going to add some positivity to the Mets rotation and add some depth. So I'm in favor of the move. Rich, John brought up Anthony Kay, Simeon Woods Richardson. 
the farm system is clearly uh, emptied, I guess is a good way to say it. Uh, so Brody Van Wagenen and his henchmen will be starting from scratch and, and drafting anew to include this year's draft. Uh, so, you know, available resources, gone. Nevertheless, we still have Marcus Stroman. We have a starting rotation of no Syndergaard, Wheeler, Matt, Stroman, and who am I forgetting? Dick Rob. Five there, on the list. <laughs> there you go. How could I forget him? But it always happens. Uh, so, yeah, we have a barren system, but we have a very strong start, uh, starting rotation. Your impressions on Stroman and the rotation? Well, you know, about the Stroman trade, at first it was a head-scratcher. And and then you start to really think about it, right? And and neither Kay nor Simeon Woods-Richardson are top 100 prospects in Major League Baseball. Now, they were top prospects in the Mets system, but, you know, that's not saying a whole heck of a lot, given that the Mets farm system is rated about 27th, 28th, depending upon what you read. Anthony Kay and... Here's a guy, everything I'm reading about him, you know, what the scouts are saying, is he projects as a fourth or fifth starter and more likely a bullpen piece. He doesn't throw hard, which isn't necessarily a mitigating factor to success, but he's not an eye-popping kind of a prospect. So you have that. Simeon Woods-Richardson is the better prospect of the two, but he's only 18 years old. And you don't know where he will go. Now, he may be the next Doc Gooden, absolutely. But he also might never come to the major leagues, right, which is also a possibility when you're 18 and in single A. So they gave up something, but they got they got a really good pitcher in return. You know, Stroman's ERA is under three this year. He, um, you know, granted his record isn't good, but that's more a function of the team he was, he was pitching for. So I agree with what John said. You, know, you have to give up something to get something. So I'm in favor of the trade. I read something today from Bob Clappish that I thought was fascinating. According to the article I read, when the Mets acquired Stroman, they did so, according to this article I read, with the intent of trading him to the Yankees. And, uh, but then they were unable to come, to come to terms with the Yankees, and they decided to hold him. So, but in any event, you know, let's, let's remember who Stroman is. He's a young man with New York roots, so he's not going anywhere. Now, granted, they have to think about what they'll do with him beyond 2020. But they got a really good young arm there that could stay in the rotation for a while. And then with regard to the farm system, they had a good draft this year. They're going to need another one and maybe another one after that because it is really barren at this point. But I think it was barren anyway, Mike. I don't think losing Anthony Kay is that big of a deal. I, I really don't. Now, granted, they, they traded two pitchers, yes. These aren't studs, though. They're not. You know, they're not in Major League Baseball's top 100, and that's what I go by. So, anyway, th- those are my thoughts. You know what? Let's stay there for a second, and let's reassess all the bodies that we parted with to acquire some of these people. Jared Kellenick, Justin Dunn, Roy, uh, Ross Adolf, uh, Anthony Kay, and, 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 and Simeon Woods-Richardson. Uh, those are five bodies right there. You know, there's been a lot of overreaction that the Mets emptied out their system, uh, that Brody set us back years. We're really still talking about low-level prospects here, and that's a flip of a coin. I think maybe Anthony Kay was probably the most accomplished of the five, being that he touched AAA. So your assessment of where the farm system sits right now in relation to how it could have uh, – complimented the 40-man roster. John? 
And I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by saying that any general manager that takes over a new team is going to want to put his own staple or stamp on a team. And, you know, we could all disagree with the way that Brody Van Wagenen chose to do it, but what he is doing by moving players and bringing in other players is nothing different than any other general manager or most other general managers when they take over a team in Major League Baseball. He has a very has had a very good draft this past June. You know, certainly the first three picks were you know very high ceiling guys, and obviously being able to get Matthew Allen, a guy that wasn't expected to be signed, was a big deal. Um, some of the amateur players that I'm sorry, some of the players you know the uh, international players he's brought in. You know, we'll see what ends up happening. But the bottom line is. He is overall has looked to put his own kind of stamp on this team. So you look at a Mets farm system, which he inherited, which was not anywhere near the top in all of Major League Baseball. So he finds some value in regards to some of the players he has, and he's moved them. The Mets farm system is probably a little worse off, certainly, than it was at the end of the 2018 season. But I, I think he is looking to build his own version of what the Mets farm system will be. And he's brought in guys like, you know, Adam Guttridge and Laird Baird and, uh, you know, Jared Banner, you know, guys that, you know, have, have experience, you know, in the game with, you know, whether it's analytics, but also understanding, you know, what it takes to build the team. So, you know, I, I don't think we're really in a position that we could say, Hey, he's, failed in regards to building a farm system. He certainly is going to need more time to do that. So while he's kept the major league roster competitive, and certainly we'd like to see it get a little better and this team to, to be towards the top of the national league and a little bit better than they are right now. Uh, it, it's hard to say the farm system is necessarily destroyed right now because, you know, he hasn't been here that long and necessarily put his stamp on what the farm system is going to be in his mind and his staff's mind. You know, Rich, John brings up a great point. Uh, Brody's report card is, is rather incomplete, and we're still yet to realize any anything in return from the executives Brody has brought on uh, on board. So, you know, there's still that to look forward, but here we are and, and, and we've separated with some bodies. I'll even throw in a couple of more just to play contrarian because let us not forget that we traded for Keon Broxton uh, and released him and, you know, effectively gave away Adam Hill and Felix Valerio and an injured Bobby Wall. No harm done. So, Rich, was there an overreaction to uh, the, the prices paid for some of these players? Well, I think it's a negative halo effect, Mike. I think when you look at the Diaz-Cano trade and what went the other way, Kalenic and Dunn, and, um, and you see that and you say to yourself, wow, you know, this has not worked out for the Mets at all. And the two guys they gave up, not only has it not worked out on the major league roster for the Mets, but then you start thinking about, and they gave up two of their best prospects. So anything else Brody does prospect-wise gets that overreaction. I firmly believe it. I think if it were not for the Kalenic-Dunn trade, you would not see the overreaction to Kay and Simeon Woods-Richardson going for Stroman. I think it's just that negative halo that, oh, my God, here he goes again. This guy wants to do nothing except trade prospects and doesn't know what the hell he's doing because look at Cano and Diaz. 
So I think there's a very strong negative halo effect, which does produce an overreaction. I mean, some of the stuff I read, it's like, I mean, please, you know, they're, they're deifying Anthony Kay, a guy who, granted in limited time in AAA, is pretty much getting lit up. I know he got really lit up in his first start in the, in the Blue Jays organization. But when, when, you, when you read from competitive teams, competitive scouting, saying that this guy's a fourth or fifth starter at best, you start to think about it and you say to yourself, the Mets brought in a freaking all-star. I mean, you know, let, let's, let's look at each and every transaction on, on its own merits. You know, let's not have that negative halo of the Cano-Diaz trade because I think that's a huge part of the overreaction. Uh, pick it up, Rich, with the Jason Vargas trade. We picked up a minor league catcher from double-A level. Austin Bosart from Philadelphia. Uh, you know, there's not much to say about his offensive capabilities, but defensively, and here's something that I like. Uh, in in five seasons, he's thrown out would-be thieves at a 41% rate of success. This year, he's down to 35, but it's a representative number nonetheless. So, Rich, take it away with the Jason Vargas trade. Uh, what do you make of it? And do you actually think this was punishment for the incident earlier this season? Did the Mets get Duffy Dyer? I mean, the guy sounds just like, you know, your traditional backup catcher, right? The guy is good defensively, throws runners out, can't hit a look. I mean, Mike, come on. Doesn't he sound like Duffy Dyer? So, uh, <laughs> he sure does. But, uh, but anyway, going with that. You know what I think it was, and it's part of Brody's letter that I know we'll get to, that they had to, they traded Vargas to make room on the major league roster, and I think that probably is true. I think they really had it in their minds that, look, here's a guy who, yes, he has an option here next year, but his contract's expiring. The whole incident in the clubhouse, we want him out of here. Now we have to get him out of here because of Stroman. So, now, okay, now where's he going to go? And the Phillies probably made the best possible offer. They probably – other teams are probably offering, you know, the thing we joke about all the time, the single-A reliever. The Phillies actually offered something where at least the guy could catch, at least the guy's a good defensive catcher. And I think it really was a question of wanting to clear the roster spot. And when you think about everything Vargas has been through with this organization, he was clearly going to be the one to go. They were under the gun, and the Phillies offered, albeit a modest package, probably – the best package, and they just made the move. And I don't really give a darn that he went to a divisional rival. It really doesn't matter to me. I, I, if you ask yourself, would you rather have Marcus Stroman or Jason Vargas on the Hill, I think 99% of Met fans would say we'd rather have Marcus Stroman. And where Vargas had to go to make that happen, who really cares? That's my opinion. <laughs> why don't you, Rich, why don't you educate us on Brody's letter to the fans, and then we'll have John – uh, react to it and add in his uh, comments about Jason Vargas. Well, you know, Brody wrote a letter to the fans very recently, the past couple of hours, and probably the last two hours, and he tweeted it. So he tweeted a picture of it. And um, and really, it's kind of funny because it's coming off of Alonzo's letter before the White Sox series, basically imploring the fans to stick with us. You know, there's something here, thanking the fans for being in their corner and saying, hey, we're going to keep pushing, you know, please stay with us. Okay. So if you saw Alonzo's letter, Brody's letter seems seemingly was written by the same person. It's basically the same content. It's saying, hey, thank you for your incredible support. Um, we picked up Marcus Stroman. We're really happy about that. We didn't do anything else at the, at the deadline, but we are committed to winning. 
Uh, we're going to push hard this year. We're committing to winning this year and in the future. So things he said before. Uh, so really what he's doing is thanking the fans, saying, you know, giving the organization kudos, which I think they deserve for picking up Marcus Stroman, and saying don't interpret the fact that we didn't do anything else, anything else of substance, as we're packing in 2019 because we are all in on 2019 and beyond. That's really what he said in the letter. And the last couple of sentences were the typical, oh, it was so hard to part with Jason Vargas. You know, he's, he's a pro and all that. But, you know, we, we had to do what we had to do. That, that was how he ended it. I think it's, it's kind of, um, what is this, you know, the new in thing where players and general managers write open letters to the fans? It, fine. But it's kind of strange to see two within a 72-hour period. But that, that essentially was the letter. John, Jason Vargas, and how does this letter coincide or how does it manage to sit side-by-side side with this proposed plan to trade Syndergaard? Well, I think, I think a lot of it has to, to do with each other. Um, I, I believe the letter has something to do with a lot of the – I guess the unrest that fans are going to have is they follow the trading deadline over the last, you know, week or so. All you're hearing if you go, whether it's MLB Network or, you know, you're following your favorite insider, it's the Mets are looking to trade Syndergaard. The Mets are looking to trade Diaz. The Mets are, are trying to trade Wheeler. So all this stuff coming at the same time, the trading deadline goes by and none of those players are traded. You know, I, I think Brody believes he's got a – he's got to make a statement to kind of clarify where the Mets are in spite of all these other rumors. Now we know rumors are just that unless something happens, unless an agreement is made and a trade is made, all it is is just, you know, talk, it's smoke. But, you know, a lot of the discussion has been about the potential of these other pitchers being traded. And now that they weren't, I think he felt the need to make a statement to the fans and kind of, uh, show where you, where you are, really what you were thinking or as much as what you were thinking as you could reveal, I guess, in a letter per se. I don't have any issue with it. You know, you look at Jason Vargas, certainly, you, you know, Rich hit it right on the head. You know, you add Marcus Stroman, you got six starting pitchers. You know, not one, you know, there's not one of those pitchers that are going to the bullpen. You're not going to six-man rotation, so somebody's got to go. And if any, if you ask any Met fan out of the six pitchers, Vargas including, what, which pitcher would you prefer to part with to have a five-man rotation? You would say Jason Vargas. So, you know, th- there's nothing you know bad about the move of Vargas. You know, even to the Phillies, you know, the Phillies look at him obviously as a depth piece to their rotation. If you look at their starting five and the guys that were projected to be in there at the start of the season, it's been a disaster. You know, guy in Jake Arrieta who you know, is, is making what, you know, 30, 30 something million dollars a year has not lived up to the hype. You know, he's fighting bone spurs. He's going to have to have surgery at the end of the season. So, you know, the Phillies certainly needed an arm. And so I think it ends up helping both teams. And obviously the Mets going forward are a lot better with a guy like Marcus Stroman in the middle of the mix. I'm very happy in the simplicity of the day, the fact that we negotiated for Stroman uh, for, you know, a, a relatively low cost, and that's all we did, I'm content with that. So with that said, that was the trade deadline. Those were our transactions. Let's talk Mets baseball. In July, the Mets posted a 14-8 and record. That's their first winning month 
since the March slash April month in which they went 15 and 14. Uh, they are 13 and 5 since the All Star break or the All Star game, I should say. Uh, they swept the Pirates. They just completed a sweep of the Chicago White Sox. The Mets have won seven in a row and eight of their last ten games. They're doing well. Uh, we had that lost weekend in San Francisco in which they lost three or four. Otherwise, again, they're doing well. Now, to play contrarian, we played Pittsburgh, San Diego, and Chicago White Sox. Not good teams. So what's your spin on those little bits of data, Rich? Well, Mike, you know, I'm going to quote you back to you and, and say that this was bound to normalize no matter who they were playing. This is not a bad baseball team. I'm not saying it's a good or great baseball team, but I am saying it's not a bad baseball team. They played bad baseball for a while, and it was due to normalize. So some of what you're seeing is that. It's just the team playing to the level it should. Now, of course, something has to do with the fact they're playing weak competition. Of course it does. But on the other hand, every team plays weak competition at some point. You know, the stretch the Mets had before the All-Star break was insane. They played the Dodgers. They played the Cubs. They played the Braves. You know, they got pounded with all these hard games in a row, and they took it on the chin. And they should have done better, and they did not. And that's why they're in the spot they're in, where they're on the periphery of the race. But you know, you have a softer schedule, the team starts playing as it should, things normalize, and you have better baseball. So, you know, none of this should surprise anyone, in my opinion. Maybe eight out of ten is a little aggressive, maybe seven in a row is a bit aggressive. But playing better baseball, especially when you finally get some weaker competition, I don't think that should surprise anyone. You know, and I'll throw this in, too. The Yankees beat the living tar out of the Baltimore Orioles on a regular basis. They play them 19 games a year, and it seems like they've played them 300 times this year. So every time I turn the TV on, they're playing the Orioles. And the Yankees go out there, and they take care of business. They pound the Orioles into oblivion, as they should. They pound the Blue Jays into oblivion, as they should. So there's nothing wrong with the Mets getting a little bit fatter on the soft part of the schedule. It's what you should do, and it's what all teams do. So that, that's my take on it. Well said, Rich. Uh, John, I will layer these two tidbits and hand it over to you. They're presently 53 and 55 on the season, uh, but they're 10 and a half games back in the National League East, only four games back of the second wild card. What say you? I, I think this is a team that can make a run. I mean, you look at you look at really the construction of the roster. You know, guys like Alonzo and McNeil have certainly changed the perception of what we would have thought of this offense. You know, Cano has has been a big disappointment. But you know, you look at what Alonzo and McNeil have added to the Mets lineup. That listen, you you would have you would have to be really the most optimistic to expect them to do what they've done. So you look at their starting pitching, and obviously their starting pitching really within the last month or so has has been kind of on a level of its own. And you look at what the bullpen has done and hurt them over the course of the season. We could all dream and fantasize about what the Mets' record would be if you know they didn't blow half the games that the bullpen have, has blown over the course of the season. So I do think this is a better team than, let's say, 
the team that was 10 games under 500 at the all-star break. So Rich makes a good point talking about, you know, normal normalization over, over the course of time, you know, your record really is what you are. You know, if you're 10 games under 500 and you happen to have a little more talent than that, uh, eventually your record is going to Im- improve. Or if you happen to be 10 games over 500 when, you know, you've, you've lucked out and won some games that you probably shouldn't have won, over time you'll probably get closer to 500. So I think, you know, it, it, the Mets look to me like a team that I think can be in the mix you know, over the course of the months of August and September. But listen, you look at, you know, let's say what the Atlanta Braves have done at the trading deadline, adding the, you know, the relief pitchers that they did. The Nationals, who are, looked like they were left for dead earlier in the season, doing what they're doing. So the Mets have to find a way to compete with the likes of, let's say, a Washington, a Philadelphia, a Milwaukee, a St. Louis, the legitimate teams that look at themselves as the wild cards right now, and that's what you really have to ask yourself. Are they good enough to beat the Pirates? Are they good enough to beat uh, the White Sox and the Marlins? Yeah, they probably are. How does this team rank when you look at the other teams that are in the mix for the wild cards? Not the teams that are necessarily ahead of them, like San Francisco and Arizona, but the teams that are in there right now. Are the Mets good enough to compete day in and day out with Washington, with Milwaukee? I think that's what we're going to see over the course of the next couple months. Rich, let's uh, let's continue to haggle with numbers here. They have 33 home games remaining. They have 22 home, uh, excuse me, 22 road games remaining. The 55 games left in the season. They need to win about 60 to 63 percent of those games in order to remain viable for that wild card spot. Uh, I want to know what you know your 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 level of confidences with, with that scenario and the fact that once upon a time we were the second worst National League team behind only the Marlins. We've leapfrogged four teams, but there's still five teams to go. So what say you? Well, I think you have to be realistic. You know, as John was saying, you know, and, and I'll, I'll go a step further and quote um, Bill Parcells, you know, you are what your record says you are. So, the Mets are still two games under 500. Yes, they've normalized and all that stuff we just talked about, but they're not a great team. And so because of that, and they, they didn't add other than Stroman, they, they didn't add pieces at, at the break, So I mean at the trade deadline. So I do think it's still an outside shot. Um, but on the other hand, you look at the teams that are in front of them, the San Francisco Giants, who I think are absolutely a mirage. Uh, you're not going to tell me otherwise, in my opinion. I think they're a mirage. I don't think they're that good. And I think they're going to come back to earth, which they already are, by the way. They're down to a game over 500. They had a great run, and I think it's over. I think they will normalize. You have the Phillies. You have the Cardinals. These teams are all flawed. You know, the Cardinals at the break were desperate to add pieces, and they didn't. Um, the Phillies had to go out and add a bunch of pieces. You know, and I already talked about the Giants. So you think about the teams that are in front of the Mets. I don't see a dynamic team there. So while the Mets aren't that great, I don't think the competition's all that great. But the Mets put themselves in a hole, so I do think it's less likely than it is likely that they'll make the, that they'll make the second wild card. And the other thing I want to point out is, 
I kind of chuckle when people say, well, you know, you have to win 90 games to get to the wild card, which means the Mets would have to win 38 of the next 55, and that's 38, and uh, whatever the math is on that, 17, I think it is, and they can't do that. Well, no, that that's really not true because – these teams, they're not, as I said, they're not great teams. You have to be one game better than the team that finishes third in the wild card hunt. That's what you have to be. 87 might get you in. Who knows? 86 might get you in because the competition just isn't great. And this is why, Mike, you, know, you and I talk about this all the time. Those games in April, like you always say, you can't win a pennant in April, but you sure can lose one. All those games that they lost here and there, you know, a Diaz meltdown, whatever it might be, it, all those games count, and they put themselves in this spot. So in summary, it's doable because of the nature of the competition. I don't think it's out of the question. I'm not incredibly confident that they're going to do it. But just imagine, just imagine for a moment, if they did get the second wild card, and we're getting ready to watch that game. Is that not the quintessential definition of playing with house money? I mean, the Mets would have come from absolutely nowhere. And just like, okay, here we are playing a wild card game. Let's see what happens, you know, because you can't possibly be disappointed. It would have been a hell of a magical run. So that's where I am with it. I think we're, I think uh, there's going to be an entertaining two months ahead. Uh, John, anything you want to add to that real quick? Well, listen, I don't want to, uh, and I know we've, we've talked a lot of positive in regards to the Mets, and trust me, dude, I, I'm optimistic about what we've seen so far and what we can see over the course of the next two months. But I do think it's very important to address the white elephant in the room. The Mets bullpen still garners really no confidence. Uh, you know, Edwin Diaz, though he's picked up a couple saves over the last week, doesn't look like he's really gotten through his struggles. The Mets bullpen really outside of Seth Lugo and a little bit of Justin Wilson, as long as he's been healthy, it really gives you nothing to have a lot of confidence in. If the Mets are going to make this run and compete with the likes of these other teams, you know, particularly a team like Washington that improved their bullpen, you know, they're going to have to show that whatever issues they've had with their relievers have improved. And in spite of the Mets, you know, going 13-5 and five since the All-Star break, being currently on a seven-game winning streak, I haven't gained enough confidence that the bullpen has turned the page. And if there's one thing that's going to get in its way, it might be the same thing that has gotten in its way in the first half of the season. Rich, if we're going to do this like John alludes to, it's going to be through the bullpen. And here's a stat. They have a 3.34 ERA since the All-Star break. That might be an indication that they might be getting their act together. Uh, How would you massage the late innings moving forward? Because the manner in which Mickey has been uh, maneuvering these guys has obviously hasn't worked to the greatest of satisfaction. And I'm talking specifically about Lugo. I think he's been mismanaged. So how would you massage the bullpen as presently constituted through the rest of the season? Well, I'd almost go to a dual-hat closer role. You know, I think I I, I want to see Lugo in more high-leverage situations. I want to see him close some games. And I think there's a two-part benefit to that. 
you can give Diaz more rest because I'm convinced there's something rattling, rattling around in his elbow, which is why he's not finishing the slider. You know, you could say it's the ball and all that stuff, and maybe it is to a degree. But we know he's got those bone chips in there, and, and all of a sudden this guy isn't quite as effective. And, and if you listen to Todd Zeal, he's not finishing the slider. So give him a little extra time between, between appearances. Let he and Lugo split the closing duties. That's the first thing I would do. And I'm very pleased by the emergence of some of these other guys in the bullpen. Gaselman is pitching better. Luis Avilan, what a find. I mean, uh, you know, when the Mets sign was like, okay, you know, uh, we remember this guy from the Braves and all, right? Well, Avilan has been very good since the All-Star break. So you have him in middle relief. You have Gaselman. Um, you know, Wilson, Justin Wilson has been very good. So you have some pieces that are – Again, normalizing. These are guys doing what we expected them to do, and they're starting to do those things to a point where, you know, your six and the starters are going deep, which is huge because now you're now you're looking for maybe somebody to get a critical out in the seventh, pitch somebody to pitch the eighth, and then go to a closer. So when you've got Avilon, you've got Wilson, you've got Gaselman, Familia, you know, the guy's got great stuff. It's not a question of stuff. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he looked good today. And if you could ever figure him out. And especially when you don't need the bullpen for long stretches, you could do it. I mean, the, the, the pieces are there, and the demand should be light on the bullpen. So we all know that one of the reasons the Mets are in the situation they are is, is ineffective bullpen work. And, um, and if, they could, if, they, if these guys could just start doing what we thought they would do, now you've fixed internally, you've fixed the biggest problem you had, and that could be a big, a big part of, of better play going forward. And I think, Mike, we have a, a fellow that you and I know on hold here. Mr. Maxwell, I believe, is on hold. Not anymore. Oops, he, he just texted me. Okay. There we go. Sam, welcome to the Metzian Podcast. Hello from Colorado Springs. I am heading north right now on I-25, and I'm looking at the mountains that just had a little bit of rain. They got some low cloud coverage, and uh, I figured since I was traveling back, I could uh, uh, join in the Mets conversation. Well, Sam, riddle me this. Mets fans, we forgot about Avilon, and we forgot about Justin Wilson, didn't we? Because they started out well before they got injured, and then, you know, the bullpen went kaplooey. These guys weren't around, and now that they're back, you know, the bullpen seems to be getting their act together again. Yeah, that that could be uh, very well the uh, recipe for success one way or the other, you know. Um, Justin Wilson gets a little wild sometimes, but lately he's been pretty sharp. Uh, going back to Diaz real quick, he might have bottomed out the other night. That was, you know, we're lucky that he didn't uh, lose the game and that he got his, his stuff together. I mean, it was – I couldn't believe how wild he was. I mean, he's been getting hit in the zone. And the problem hasn't been that he's been, he's been really walking too many people. He's been giving up the home run, which means that, you know, he, he, he's in the zone generally uh, one way or the other. But uh, even if it's not the sharpest in the zone – um, obviously he gave up a home run last night, but maybe maybe the trade deadline was two in his head, uh, which, you know, you don't want to think that mentally that's what the deal is because obviously, you know, now he's going to be pitching in quite possibly the biggest games of his life. 
So that's, uh, you know, hopefully he bottomed out the other day and it's all up from here. Uh, he looked real sharp at certain points yesterday, other than that home run. Um, you know, Familia, like, could he really be worse than the ADRA that he's had so far? Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about it. Obviously, he kind of uh, got started off after the All-Star break uh, well, but then had some rough outings again. Inconsistency is the name of the game, and hopefully he can, you know, he's back to being a major piece. And I think everybody, especially because of the Stroman trade, uh, sees that this team is right on the on the brink of possibly having a magical run. Uh, obviously, it's going to have to be a magical run. There's, it's, it's not going to be a 90. Uh, it's not. It's not going to be a 2006. It's not going to be uh, a 1986 by any stretch of the imagination. Obviously, the miracle at the end, notwithstanding, was 1986. Um, I, I, you know, just to go all over the map with something you guys were talking about. I mean, Arizona, who is uh, has been in front of the Mets. Ranking. I didn't see what pieces they got, but that's a, a major piece to lose if you're planning on hunting down the wild card. Um, I think that that everything looks doable. I mean, you know, we were talking about after that Giants series that the Mets were, you know, fooling us once, shame on them, fooling us twice, shame on us. But I, I think this third time may be a charm uh, because – Every time, you know, the last few days, every time that they've been winning, some other teams have been losing. And they've been gaining some serious ground on all these teams. Uh, and like you guys said, they are, they are seriously flawed, uh, and, and things might be evening out. And, and to also just keep with my rant a little bit, you know, the, Mar- the Mets got swept by the Marlins at some point. Uh, you know, they, they, they played these four teams as letdown games a lot of times. Um, you know, they they basically won a couple games against the White Sox that they lost against the Giants. Obviously, there may be some factors in terms of a veteran coach and some veteran players there in the, with the Giants in San Francisco, but they they seem to understand where they currently are and that management. I mean, you know, I was thinking about it the other day if if they're serious at all about contending now or in the future. How could you really give up Zach Wheeler specifically for this end stretch, of course, with him since he is a free agent next year? How can you give up Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard? And all of a sudden, what the Mets fan was screaming for at the beginning of the year, for the Mets to replace Jason Vargas with a better starter, has come to fruition. So there's a lot of factors involved as to why this team may be on the brink of something special, but... Obviously, like Rich said, it, it's unlikely, but, you know, it was unlikely that the Mets would make the World Series in 1973. So you never know. It ain't over till it's over, to quote the manager of that season. John, Sam just said some, something special, uh, and I'll ask you this way. Since the All-Star break, the starters have a 2.37 ERA. Jacob deGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, Stephen Matz, and Zach Wheeler. That's a formidable five. Now, the question I pose to you, there's a lot of talk that putting all your eggs into one rotation, quote-unquote, basket is folly. So somewhere between something special and folly, where does, this, where does this leave the Mets? 
And can this rotation carry the Mets through the next two months? I tell you, the first thing that I'm thinking about, going back to what I was saying about the bullpen before, the amount of innings that the Mets starters are going is making a difference. If you remember early on in the season, you know, you're looking at Syndergaard struggles and some of whether it was Wheeler or Mats, Vargas even, not necessarily going very deep into games. You, you've seen it gradually as the season has gone by. Maybe the arms are getting a little fresher and, you know, they're kind of getting pushed a little bit further. Mickey Callaway was talking about how he's pushing his starters really more or longer than any other starters in the league. So the starting rotation has helped the bullpen. And, you know, you look at five guys, you know, and we've, we've, we've named them the entire show that are going to be on the mound as long as they're healthy. One of those guys are going to be starting every day. So every, every game you have a chance for a starter to go, you know, whether it's into the seventh inning or plus seven innings every game, I, I think it's given the Mets a very good chance to win. And, that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm believing all the excitement that we've talked about during the program today. Uh, I do believe there could be something special in the air. But, you know, at the same time, it's going to, you know, continue. They're going to need to continue to win series and games just like they have over the course of the last couple of weeks. But, listen, it, the strength is really going to be off of one thing. How far can these five starters take them? Because if you look at the Mets' five starters compared to really any other five-man rotation in Major League Baseball, who has a stronger five than the New York Mets have right now? You know, it, it, you, know you could talk about a couple pitchers that are better, maybe a, a better top three if you want to talk about the Astros. But who has a better one through five than the New York Mets right now? I think they're only going to go as far as these five starters are going to take them. You're listening to a Metsian podcast, and our special guest this evening is John Pielli, host of the host of the Past Ball Show. I'll turn it over to my partner, Rich. Your impressions of this new formidable five, Rich? Well, it's interesting because everything you hear is uh, pitching is starting pitching is undervalued in the game right now. You know, the, the analytics people aren't so big on it anymore. You know, that it's more about bullpens and flexibility and all of that. I think it's a bunch of nonsense. I mean, you know, when you have the, the starting five the Mets have, here's a couple, here's a couple thoughts. You're very unlikely to go on any kind of an extended losing streak, which goodness knows with the Mets putting themselves in the spot they did, you know, and hanging on in the race, they cannot afford one. So, so you have that. You're also likely to maybe be able to do an extended winning streak, which is also good. And when you have great starting pitching, which is what I was speaking about earlier, you're able to have those guys go deep into games, and you could conserve your bullpen, you can use your pieces a little bit more wisely, and you don't end up with bullpen burnout, which we all know was an issue with Terry Collins you know, when, when he was managing the team. Not necessarily his fault, but just the way he, the way things were. You know, these guys, their arms are falling off. So there's so much to having a good starting rotation, regardless of the fact that the game has morphed away from it or is not recognizing the value as much as they once did. Um, I think it's great. You know, I think I'd put this starting five up against anybody's in baseball. You know, maybe the front end, the top three, eh, maybe aren't quite as good as the Astros, but the Mets. Five, I think the Mets five are better than the Astros. And so I put the starting rotation up against anybody, and I'm excited to see 
what it could do. You know, if you're going to sustain winning, a, gr- a good starting five is a great way to do it. Think about most teams in baseball. Most teams in baseball have two maybe, you know, two really good starters. Mets have five. And I'm throwing Matt's in there. I think Matt's is coming into his own. So it's exciting, and I think while I still think the odds are against the Mets making it, what gives me hope is that starting five. Sam, I'll reshape the question for you. I'll backtrack a little bit and tell you, or inform you rather, that the Mets have 33 home games left and only 22 road games left. And we know that they haven't played well on the road this season. They're presently 24 and 35 on the road. Uh, this new starting rotation with Stroman in it, uh, you know, we have to win about 60 to 65% of our games down the stretch in order to be viable for that wild card spot. So what do you think, Sam? Can they carry us? Sam? Oh, Sam. Let's give Sam one more shot. Come in once. Sam, are you with us? Yes, the call dropped at some point, so I think that it reset itself when I called uh, in. Um, not with Mickey Calloway. Other than, you know, to open some of these seasons, we haven't really seen the Mets go on stretches like this with Mickey Calloway. But some of these players have been around for stretches like this. Both 2015 and 2016, the Mets had stretches where they went August and September only losing less than 20 games. So we know that that in recent history, the Mets have gone on stretches of the nature that we are looking for out of this team right now. Um, I, I, You know, it, yeah, it's just when you look at the starting rotation, they are the key factor here in keeping the balance to making sure that – these bullpens do not blow as many games as they have before. Um, the offense has been a little inconsistent sometimes. I uh, I think they they need to get a little bit more consistent, especially with some of these uh, runners and scoring position numbers. Uh, we're lucky to have won some of the games we won a couple nights ago. Um, but they won them. They got the W. They had some clutch hits. And that's, that's what we're going to have to see. I mean, it's the same thing with the, the tail end of 2015 and 2016. There were some major, major clutch hits here. Uh, and one of those players that had some of those clutch hits, as Drupal Cabrera, just went on the uh, uh, the market quite possibly, being DSA'd by Texas. Um, and, you know, I... I was just, I immediately said I would love to add Cab on the uh, the bench right now. I'm not sure. I haven't take, take, taken a full look at what those logistics could be, uh, but I, I feel that his joyful way of playing baseball and the way he's been clutched before could work on this team right now. I don't know how it would. I, 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 I forget what the bench looks like. But there is a, a major key piece that's going to be on the GL at the end of August, it sounds like, and that's Dominic Smith. So, there, you know, he's been out, obviously, in the outfield, somewhat in the infield occasionally. Uh, but maybe there, there is room, especially if the rosters are going to be expanding in September. Well, perfect segue. John, if the Mets play well in August, they're playing meaningful games in September. 
We're forced to revisit the situation at third base. Todd Frazier starting over, per se, J.D. Davis, McNeil. And McNeil and Dom Smith, you know, that poses a, a different issue in the outfield. But it all stems from Todd Frazier. So how would you handle his playing time moving forward? Well, right now it kind of works out perfectly, especially with Dominic Smith out still. You know, we're, we we haven't heard anything from when Brandon Nemo is going to be, you know, engaged in baseball activities. So, you know, your your outfield right now is Conforto, McNeil, and Davis, and that kind of gives more playing time for Todd Frazier at third base. And we, you know, listen, we've we've thought about what would be the ideal scenario. Think about it. I mean, there's this guy named Jed Lowry that they signed as a free agent last off season. You know, he's supposed to be playing somewhere. I mean, if he was healthy, where would he be playing? Now, it, it's it's amazing how things have a way of working themselves out, right? It, you know, like you could look at the log jam that was there with Cano at second, with Lowry, with Frazier, with Davis, with even even the perspective of a Johannes Cespedes coming back to the Mets at some point this season. Now, you can think of that huge log jam, whether it's within the outfield and at third base and in the infield, but for some reason it's managed to work its way out. Uh, I think Todd Frazier has some value for this team. I wouldn't have been shocked nor disappointed if Frazier was traded, you know, prior to yesterday and it was no longer on the team. But I do think that he has a role on his team and until the Mets get these other players back, whether you start out with a Dominic Smith, who, by the way, probably isn't going to be back until September. Uh, listen, I, I, I do think he has some value and probably has a little more value than I think a lot of us would have perceived coming into this season. Rich? Well, you know, I, I agree with what John was saying. You know, I, I think when you think about the roster construction and, um, you know, the whole, the, first of all, the whole thing with Dom Smith. Can I ask a question of you guys, a tangential question? What is a stress reaction in somebody's foot? I'm, I'm being serious. Uh, what is that? I know what a stress fracture is, but what are they talking about when they say he has a stress reaction? What the hell is that? Anybody know? <laughs> I can only say that within the last four years or so, I've heard new nomenclature for these injuries that I've never heard before. Oh, I mean, it, what the hell? But anyway, he's going to be out. And, and actually, to get to your original question about Frazier, I was big on the on the jettison Frazier bandwagon. Um, and it's not a question of, oh, you know, Frazier's been in a slump, or which, you know, he actually had a couple of big hits in this White Sox series. But it's not even that. It, it's They have to clear him out. Because J.D. Davis should be playing or McNeil should be playing third base, one or the other. But Frazier being sent away is a big part of making that available, and it didn't happen. And with the trade deadline being a hard deadline now, Frazier's here. I don't think they're going to DFA him, so he's here. He's not going anywhere. And I was disappointed. I really was because I'd like to see McNeil go to his original position of third or get more playing time for J.D. Davis. The one thing I don't want to see is more of Frazier, and that's exactly what we're going to see. And if I may, about you know, on the subject of the roster real quickly, my other disappointment from the trade deadline was I do think this team needs an athletic center fielder. I, I think the, Juan Lagares is not an issue. He's not even a thing anymore. It's a wasted roster spot. They don't use him. 
And I know he's been sick, but they don't use him anyway. So I really wanted to see them upgrade that and get a better version of Juan Ligaris, a younger guy, a, you know, a speedier guy, a guy who could still play some defense. Ligaris doesn't even really do that very well anymore. So a little disappointed that um, the Mets didn't get rid of a few pieces. That would have opened up things for others. But, yeah, Frazier would probably be front and center of my ire, the fact that Frazier is still here, because I think he's blocking two things that should happen. I did prematurely shut down that trade deadline talk, and I was going to revisit it, because, Rich, I knew you had that to say. And, John, I also know you have your own philosophy as to how teams should treat the trade deadline. So why don't you go ahead? Yeah, listen, um, I've spoken a lot about this mentality of buyers or sellers. And it's almost like it's a, a term that is kind of thrown an organization's way based off of the opinion of the media or the opinion of those associated with the sport are almost trying to tell teams you should go for it. Or if you don't look so good, you should quit and almost, almost do it to a point where you sell off your players to benefit the teams that are good. And we've seen really over the last five years or so this hard divide between what a buyer should be and what a seller should be. And I, I think each individual team should have the right to operate as it wish. And if you look at what the Mets have done really around this trading deadline, they, they kind of turned some heads because they didn't go really along with what the narrative should say that they should do. They were 10 games under 500 at the All-Star break. They should, according to what the narrative says, sell off more players to benefit other teams and get names or get players. And we all know that a lot of these trades that are made around the trading deadlines are dump trades. And if you look at back at what the Mets did in 2017 and 2018, they gave away players to help other teams not even really looking at what it was that they were getting back. Those five players that they traded at the 2017 trading deadline was basically to benefit five distinct teams. They didn't get anything back in those trades that is even worth thinking about being part of a positive Mets team down the road. So I think when we talk about buyers and sellers, it's more of a narrative that has been thrown out there, almost essentially telling teams what they should do. Now, each individual team has responsibility. There's responsibility on Brody Van Wagenen. There's responsibility on every general manager in Major League Baseball, and it's based off of one thing, wins and losses. And if Brody Van Wagenen, over the, over the course of time, turns the Mets into a winner, then he's going to look good. If he doesn't, he's probably not going to have a job for very long. So the media has a role in trying to tell these teams whether they should buy or they should sell. I think they should stick to allowing them to operate as they wish and be held accountable for whether they win or they lose. Anything you want to add to that, Sean? That's all hey, I got sorry. Uh, I think I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I think that he makes a, a valid, valid point. Um, I mean, everybody was surprised when the Stroman trade went down. 
I don't think there, there should be one person out there uh, that would say, you know, I really saw the Mets doing something along those lines. Um, everybody thought it was in anticipation of moving one of their big trades, uh, one of their big uh, potential starters, uh, and not potential starters. They are starters. Pardon moi. Bad, uh, obviously, i got to get back on track in my head. Um, little construction out here, fellas. But I think the way the Mets are constructed themselves, you know, they, they – you know, they're, they're really uh, – everybody wants to make, you know, definitive statements on Twitter and within the media as to the job that Brody has done. And we were talking about it early uh, a few weeks ago that they, you know, nothing had gone right for Brody. But it was only, you know, four months, three months into the season – that you could assess how everything had gone. And it wasn't, you know, the, the early return on the way that he had operated in his first few months as GM weren't looking good. But this is where you used the turn so far. And right now, so so far, things have corrected themselves a little bit. And so far, it is still an incomplete assessment as to how Brody has done. Now, you really can never make any definitive statements. You know, once the tenure is over, you know, we're still seeing uh, echoes of Omar Minaya when he wasn't just part of the front office but actually at the head of the front office. We're still seeing echoes of what Sandy Alderson did. Um, everything kind of carries over and acts very fluidly. But at the same time, there's nothing we can say about the job that Brody has done until the end of the season, and we can only assess how was his first season. Uh, right now, you probably have to go ahead and give him a C, but that could quickly turn to a B plus, and who knows? Maybe, as, we're, as we've been saying, something special leads to an A minus, I would say. All right, go ahead and take a crack at third base. What do the Mets do moving forward? Frazier versus Davis, offense versus defense. Which way do you go? So, was that who was that for, Mike? I'm giving that back to Sam. I'm giving okay. him a crack at Frazier. You there? Oh, pardon, pardon me. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. Um, I, I, I think that Todd Frazier just keeps, you know, hanging on. I mean, even the 250, close to a batting average that he has right now. Is still higher than the batting average that Mets fans, you know, expect from him. Uh, even when, you know, when we got him, we thought he was a 225 hitter with power. Uh, and right now, you know, obviously he's not the 276 hitter that we saw him climb to at some point. But he's been hovering at that 250 mark, and he's just. I understand that we need to assess uh, what. You know, we have a third base one way or the other. But at the same time, we were talking about if the Mets were quote-unquote stellars as the term uh, go, uh, Todd Frazier would have been picked up by a team trying to make the playoff run, knowing, like, the kind of, you know, not only the, the clubhouse leader, but the, the way he can lead emotionally on the field. Um, 
the one thing I, I don't understand why he likes to get into these battles on Twitter with both fans and the media alike. That's a little strange, but then again, he is from Tom's River. He's from the region, and he's got a little bit of that Jersey chip on his shoulder. Uh, so, you know, that might be that just, you know, it might not be black, like, too gray. It might be that black or white about uh, that. So I, I, I think that Todd, Todd Frazier does still have value for this team. And it's basically like, well, if we're really considering making a stretch run, you know, let's keep Todd Frazier around because, is that same factor that would have been for a team we were selling a ball? Yeah. Uh, very quickly, Robinson Cano, the Mets keep on batting him third and fourth. He homered today. Uh, you know, do you follow Mickey's, you know, edict and saying we got to get him through this, or do you let it play out, or are you proactive about this, Rich? Um, I think you have to be proactive. I, I think you have to move him out of that spot. I think it's killing Alonzo because I think Alonzo is chasing because he's not getting pitches to hit, and he's not getting pitches to hit because you have a 237 hitter behind him. Now, and I'm not on the – I think I'm far less on the get rid of Cano. Cano's an evil thing train than anyone else. I, I still think Robinson Cano has some value. Um, but – Batting him clean up? No, no, no. I think it's not only are you not getting anything out of him, I do think, like I said, it's having a negative impact on Alonzo. I'd like to see Cano drop to maybe sixth or seventh in the order, um, and I don't know what in the hell Mickey's thinking batting him third and fourth and mostly fourth lately, except we have to make that trade look good. Optically, we have to make that trade look good, so we're going to you know, say we acquired our cleanup hitter. That's the only thing I could think of. What say you, John? What say you, John? Well, I don't want to open up another can of worms, but is Mickey Callaway right in his own lineup? Who has the most impact over the lineup that's going out there for the Mets every day? You know, Brody Van Wagenen will he'll dodge the question or he'll at least make it to a point where the pressure isn't on him to have to answer for it. But what is the configuration of who puts – this lineup together. I think the easiest thing to say is, hey, Mickey Callaway is right in the lineup, and he's got this thing with Cano where he can't get him out of the third or fourth spot. Brody Van Wagenen is the one that, first of all, represented Cano and got Cano his 10-year contract. And number two, he is the general manager that went out there and traded for Robinson Cano. So I believe that there is, this is more on Brody for, of where Robinson Cano is batting in the lineup. Obviously, I agree with you, you, Rich. There's no reason for Robinson Cano to be batting fourth or third in this lineup. You should slide him down to sixth or seventh. You should move J.D. Davis up. Even Wilson Ramos should be batting ahead of Robinson Cano right now. But the question is, who has the biggest influence over where Robinson Cano is batting in the lineup? I I don't think it's ever going to become public but I'm believing that the guy that got him his 10-year contract, the guy that one of the first things he did when he was made general manager of the New York Mets was going out there and trading for the back part of the five years that are on Robinson Cano's contract, he may have a little more to do with it than the guy that's behind the bench bringing the lineup card to the umpire every game. Sam? 
Ocean. It would make much more. <laughs> it would make much more sense. Uh, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, it would make much more sense for Robinson Cano to be batting behind Pete Alonso, even if I don't agree with him in three hole, uh, than for him to have been in the the cleanup hole. To his credit, however, he went out there today and uh, made his manager and his general manager look good. He not only got a homer, uh, but he got uh, a two-run double, I believe, and uh, scored a couple runs. So, you know, earlier at the debate beforehand, was like, how could you keep doing this? We got, you know, we're on a hot streak. Get it? You know, this is the thing that people were kicking apart before the game. And I think that... Uh, I, I, I just imagine Robinson Snow does turn it around. Mind you, he's only had basically two great games in the last two weeks, and this, this, this he's going. I, I think one way or the other, they're living or dying by him, and hopefully that you know he's going to be a part of the equation because a great Robinson Snow could really turn this team into quite something. I got one last question, gentlemen, before we get to our final word, and it's very simple. What can the Mets do in the next two months that would reconcile, in your mind, the first four months of subpar baseball? And I'll start with you, Rich. What can they do? Well, I think the thing that they can do is if they get that second wild card, all sins are forgiven because no one will be talking about the bad start, no one we talked about Jason Vargas and Tim Healy, all that stuff will be forgotten because everybody will be focusing on that second wild card game and oh my god, we gave up on this team, this team actually did make the postseason, which is pretty rare around here so if they're able to somehow pull this off against all odds, that will go a very long way towards you know bandaging the wounds of this season, if they don't then, you know, I'm not even sure, Mike, I'm not even sure that playing good, I'm doing air quotes, good baseball will cut it. I think if they end up, you know, 84 and 78, something like that, not making the playoffs, I, I think I think people will look back and say, see that? Another Mets season. They, were, they played some relevant games in September, meaningful baseball in September. That's all they wanted. Another wasted season. The team is flawed and all those things will come right back. I think the only thing they can do to change a narrative is, in fact, get that second wild card. John Pielli is our guest this evening. He's the host of the Pass Ball Show. John, we're speaking to Mets fans now. You know, what can they do to reconcile themselves after four months of subpar baseball? Well, just think about how much everybody has kind of ridden them off. You know, especially when they went into the All-Star break, 10 games under 500. The, the looks of the way the season has gone, it looks like it was going to be just a, another bad Mets season. And, and, and I kind of agree with Rich here. It, you know, if they turn around and get to the playoffs, all of a sudden we're thinking, you know, 1973, you got to believe, on the 50-year anniversary of the 1969 World Series championship team, the Miracle Mets. So there, I think there is, a, there is a lot that could take this from being, all right, the season was a little bit of a success. You kind of forgot about all the negativity over the first four months of the season. But then you start to think of some of the history and really what, 
outside of the 1986 season, what the Mets have been kind of known for. 2015, 2016, you know, 2015, there were 36 and 19 in the months of August and September. 2016, there were 33 and 24 in August, September, and a one game in October that, of course, was not Madison Bumgarner shutting them out. You know, 73, 69, the Mets for their 50-plus years of history, or, you know, almost 60 years, have been known for that team that goes on these ridiculous runs in the month of August and September. And I tell you, it, it, would, be, it would be absolutely exciting to see it again, but it's also could be the trademark of what this franchise has been known for. Sam, the converted Mets fan. This is the lot you chose, my friend. What is your frame of mind? Remember when Jeff Wilfon handed out the underdog shirt? Yes. Continue. <laughs> well, I I feel I've always thought that like it's a good thing and a bad thing because it leaves the Wilfon, you know, kind of like like. It plays the, the idea that they they stay kind of like always straight scraping by, always you know uh, playing the the underdog. Sam, communication breakdown. Rich, you want to pick that up? Well. Um... I know, I'll go back to what John was saying. When you think about it, I, I hadn't really thought about it until, until John said it, that this team is all about miracle runs. You know, 69, they were, they were, in, they were basically a 500 team in, in mid-July, and they had gotten swept by the Astros in late July, and that's when they the took off. The world's cut me off. The world's cut me off. <laughs> yeah, I was going to go around the John path, but go ahead, Sam. Go, go Wilpons. Go all Wilpons on us. No, no, I just, I just, I'll just wrap that up because the Wilfons basically entered the cell towers in Colorado for us. Uh, that, that's basically it. it. It plays into the, you gotta believe, the hope mentality. And it gives them an excuse to not really go for it the way a New York franchise could go for it. And of course, we love miracles. Those that, that they exhilarate us to, to beyond belief when we think we're, it gives us hope for life. It gives us uh, something to look forward to whenever it's like we're, we're on the brink of disaster. We can look towards the Mets to show us that, that it's going, it, it's going to one day be all right because as much as we lose, those wins are going to feel that much more awesome. And still, they need to spend money. I'll finish with that. They need to spend more money and spend it more wisely. Sam, don't stop there. Go right into your final word because I want you driving safely out there. <laughs> it's just the call failures, you guys. I don't know what's going on, but but uh, it's like don't drop the call. That's it. The Mets have uh, the possibility of doing something special. Keep this going right now. Keep this momentum plugged away. Don't drop the call to arm. You got it, baby. Uh, John, thank you again for your time this evening, host of the Passball Show. It's been a long time. 
uh, since we've had you on too long. Uh, can't wait for the next time. Hopefully there will be. Uh, your final word, my friend. Well, Seth, I think a lot of it, a lot of it has been summed up in the show. You know, I think it's a, it was a great time for me to come on with you guys at a time in a season where perhaps the Mets could be at a crossroads. You know, this could be, a, you know, are are they going to be able to build off of seven straight wins and a thirteen and five record since the All Star break? As they after next week will start to play some better teams. Yeah, this is this is a season, and we know baseball, the marathon that it is. You know, is so many different things, and every year teams kind of go back and forth. You know, kind of jump over each other, and it's not it's such a defined postseason from when the season starts to when the season ends. So, I, I, I'm looking forward to some great baseball over the next couple months. And you know what? Even if it doesn't work out for the Mets this year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching some good baseball regardless. And thanks, you know, as always for having me on and, you know, keep up the good work with the show, guys. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to actually echo Fred Wilpon when I say if they play meaningful games in September, I, I, I will content myself with that. That's my final word. Rich, I'll pass it on to you. Two words. Keep pushing. A lot of the fans are back in now. A lot of the fan base has been sucked back in by this seven-game winning streak. Guys, Mets, keep pushing because you, you've got the interest now. You've got letters being written by the GM and by the all-star first baseman. Don't, don't take your foot off the gas pedal. Keep charging at this thing. The fans finally feel good about this team, so keep pushing, men. Sam, we will speak again shortly. Rich, you have a great weekend and safe travels. John, thank you again. Good night, everybody. Rich, take us home the only way we know how. Let's go, Mets. Let's go, Mets. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, John. All right. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.